I'm a bit of a hoarder, I plan ahead, and um, I saw in my collection of like greetings cards, I already have a Mother's Day card, because I like to have things in stock. But actually, last September, my mum died, and I was sitting with her when she died, and after she died, I asked her Alexa to play a song, and it was the last song you chose for this morning. All, all, all my life you have been faithful, and I just cried and sang along to that song. And uh, then I phoned my sister, and we had an hour and a half on the phone crying and what have you. So it's a day of honouring um, mothers, and day of season, actually, of honouring in other ways, isn't it? If you've heard of the Oscar nominations, there's been a lot of nominations for a film called Coda, Child of Deaf Adults. It's a brilliant film about family life, actually, and I uh, really recommend it. Um, it's probably got bad language and stuff, but it's, um, it's just it's a really good film about family life. Um, and honouring's an important thing, you know, it matters to people to be honoured, doesn't it? And a few years ago, um, I was contacted out of blue, I was a little bit cagey at first, and it was a civil servant, and they said they were the, the team that deals with honours, you know, like the, the um, New Year's honours list and stuff like that. And uh, could I give a, some, you know, a report on the community activities of a friend of mine called Keith Holder? And uh, because he was being considered for an honour, right, you see. And I mean, even just to be asked to give this report, I felt, oh my goodness, you know, pride, da da, and uh, stuff. So um, anyway, I did a report and then he, he wasn't actually honoured. And uh, so I thought, oh my goodness, you know. Um, I've never told anybody this before. I've never told, I've never told Keith Holder this. Um, but fortunately, the year following, his name was, and he got given an OBE. Right, but um, I don't know, you know, an OBE may just end up sitting in a drawer. What is an OBE? Is it a little medal or something, or on ribbons? I, I don't know, but, um, or you might get stolen, or it might get destroyed in a flood or a fire, or may just get, end up being sold on bargain hunt, for all I know. But, you know, to have an OBE is a wonderful thing, but Christianity invites us to run the race of life with a more enduring prize in mind participation in God's restored kingdom where there'll be no more shame, no more dishonor, no more belittling and humiliation, but rather a new society where everyone is esteemed and loved, where we all share in eternal glory and honor. And to this we are called in Christ, who is himself our great example of one who didn't seize glory but served. And as a result, he has now been glorified to the right hand of the Father forever and ever. So today we're concluding our look at this first letter of Peter in the New Testament and we're looking at chapter 5, the last chapter, and in that chapter we'll see the word glory and grace appear a great deal. Now glory is a word with two possible meanings, it's, as it's got on the slide here, it can mean sort of splendour, um, but it can also mean honour. And grace is a word to do with unmerited favour. So we Christians, of course, we want to glorify God for all he's done for us. But as Peter writes in this passage we're about to read, and it's on this next slide, God also wants to share in the glory to be revealed, wants us to share in the glory to be revealed. He says we will receive a crown of glory that will never fade away, unlike the laurel wreaths awarded to athletes at the ancient Olympic Games, which would have been in Peter's mind. And Peter also says we're called to God's eternal glory in Christ. Now, Ellie spoke so powerfully on verses 1 to 5 of this chapter last week, but I will read those again because I found it difficult to get into the rest of the chapter without 
the beginning of the chapter. So um, Peter describes, I would suggest in this chapter, the posture of people who know that they will be and already are being honoured and favoured by God. And that changes the way you live right now. So Peter addresses three groups of people in this chapter. The, the elders, which is from verse 1, then you who are younger, and lastly, from verse 5 or 6, all of you. And you'll see them mentioned as we read through this chapter. So we'll start the reading um, here, verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Verse 5, in the same way you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. It's kind of honouring language, even play, uh, play there. Verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Verse 8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Oh, and he's got a little bit more, because maybe Peter picked up the pen at this point himself. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand in it. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, Babylon is almost certainly a code word for Rome, because Peter was in Rome, so, and it's the she is the church, the Christian, the Christian church he was part of in Rome. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen. So there was these themes of glory and grace, of honour and favour. They just keep poking through this passage. And when we abandon God, we often seek alternative ways to meet our needs, for to be honoured, to be favoured, to feel approved, that we count. Some Christians may be concerned about this idea of seeking glory. That can't be right, can it? Well, consider what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 2, 6 to 11 on the next slide. It says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. There'll be trouble and distress for every being who does evil. 
first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not, for God does not show favoritism. If you're wondering which side of this huge divide Paul sets out, do come and talk to us afterwards, because it's really important to know that you are living under the favor of God. So the gospel reminds us that, uh, on, that, um, uh, that the only f- honor and favor that counts is what we receive from God. You can have Oscars and OBEs and all the rest, but it's what God thinks of you that matters the most. And God offers to restore us to a place where he will honor us and favor us in and through Jesus Christ. Thank God for that. Now, some 35 years ago, Elspeth and I were asked to move house into a new role and was wondering whether that was God's will. I was reading through John's gospel and it was in chapter 12, came to verse 26 and it was one of those moments when it just like popped out at me. Many of you will have had that experience. And it says, whoever serves me must follow me and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. And I just felt at that moment that Jesus was in the place where I'd been asked to go and that I was to join him there and that if I did, I would receive that promise that the Father would honour me. You, yeah? God wants to do that. I want you to understand that, to be persuaded that it is God's desire that he would honour us. Because Peter knows that as uh, certainly the Christians in his day were marginalised, humiliated. Um, and so he's deliberately speaking about the glory we will receive, about God's destiny for us to be honoured, esteemed, appreciated by God our Father. Don't you just love those words in Matthew 25 where it talks about, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? Those are important words. Uh, you, or I think about Hebrews 6.10. This is in the New Living Translation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. Right? Do, do you see the, this is a theme in scripture. You know, when um, my father died in 2014, getting both deaths in suddenly in this talk, um, when he died, I realized, I was kind of analyzing the pain of it, and I realized that for me, the chief pain was something I was never going to get, all right? And that was my father's approval of me, all right? So, yeah, he was, he was a generally a very positive person, but I had become a Christian, I'd gone into Christian ministry, and... He just lived like 10 minutes up the road, but he, he never came to hear me preach, right? And it hurt. And during, uh, while he was still alive, I remember being prayed for by someone about this, and they said, well, why don't you take the initiative? Give him some tapes. This was back in the day when there were tapes, you know, cassette tapes. I know some of you are far too young. You, you don't, what's that? It was a way of recording, you know, talks and... <laughs> You had a device, you put it in, and you played play, play, and it would play the music. The devices were quite large, but anyway. Um, so I'd given him these, t- these tapes, and he just never said anything about it to me. And, you know, I guess I should have had the courage to ask, but I, I didn't. I was, I was afraid that he might say, oh, I haven't listened to those. Or something. I didn't want to hear that. 
but maybe he did. And then when I was clearing his stuff after he died, I found the tapes. But I still don't know. I mean, he kept them. I don't know if he'd ever listened to them. But when he died, I knew I, I, I will never have him actually say, I listened to that, and, and you did well, son, or something, you know? And I knew that I was never going to get that and needed to process that. See, Peter's purpose in writing this letter, we're told in verse 12, is to encourage you and testify that this is the true grace of God, that God loves us, he's kind to us, and we have a God who is looking for a way which he found through his son's sacrifice to approve us, to put his favour on us, to give us honour, to share glory with us. And so this, this, the this Peter mentions in this verse is surely about receiving this glory and this grace. So Peter also tells us about his purpose in 2 Peter 3.1. He says, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. This is in his second letter. I have written both of these letters as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Some versions say to a sincere mind. So I want to talk about this as something is helpful for us to think through. So in chapter 5, I think Peter talks about our posture towards life that results from wholesome thinking about God and his call on us. I believe God will honour his followers. And because we will be honoured, we don't need to steal honour for ourselves, which is to be proud. We don't need to shame others with slander, which is the devil's work anyway. And instead, we're able to share honour with others, which is actually a way of being humble. And we can cope with dishonouring experiences because our hope is in God and what he has said. And we can cast our anxieties on him who will say to us one day, well done, good and faithful servant. So this is the posture of people who know that they will be and are being honoured and favoured by God, who have his approval. So, I, I, just, I, I mean, Ellie spoke so powerfully last week. I just want to say a few things about Jesus' model of leadership here in verses 2 to 3. Um, so it is on a slide. Be shepherds of God's flocks that's under your care. Uh, it has, he says three things. Not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples. Right, Peter, in a sense, says three things here, that uh, leadership is not resentful but rejoicing, not thieving but serving. I've got to get my alliteration in, and not dominating but displaying, right? Right, not resentful but rejoicing, not thieving but serving, and not dominating but displaying. Now, Bryn Hughes, a friend of mine, wrote a book on leadership, and I love his grid on theory X and theory Y leadership styles. We've got it on the slide here. It says, Theory X leaders assume that people they lead generally lack integrity, are fundamentally lazy and desire to do as little work as possible, that they shirk responsibility, need external threat and control for results, are incapable of directing their own behaviour, are not primarily concerned about the needs of the community and are not creative. Now, I think on the world stage at the moment, we have two very good examples of Theory X and Theory Y leaders. One is the president of the Russian Federation. The other is the president of Ukraine. 
Theory Y leaders assume that people they lead generally have integrity, will work hard towards targets and show personal commitment to those targets, will accept responsibility within their own sphere and go on to seek more of it, prefer intrinsic motivation based on fulfilment, are capable of directing their own behaviour, want their community to do very well, have imagination, ingenuity and creativity. And friends, let's be the employee that in fact fulfills that, hey, if you're in a workplace. So, to all of you then, moving on, because Ellie spoke really wonderfully about this passage last week, verses 1 to 5. Clothe yourselves with humility, humble yourselves, verse 5b and verse 6, that he may lift you up. God will lift you up. God will not abandon you. God does not forget you. What is pride? Because it, we're invited to humble ourselves. What is pride? Pride is thinking we know better than God. Pride is thinking I'm better than other people. Pride steals on a, from other people. Pride is being thin-skinned and easily offended and upset. And pride makes every relationship a competition, every encounter a win-lose match. Now you might say, well, Andrew, isn't there good pride as well? And I think there is good pride. Good pride, as I say on the slide here, is, is good pride in yourself is faith in the idea that God had when he made you. And good pride in other people, let's say your children or a sister or brother or somebody you know at work, Good pride in someone else is faith in the idea God had when he made them. I think maybe in the Bible, good pride is called confidence. Now, there are many situations in our society where people are, 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 are left on the side, are marginalised, downtrodden, deaf people. Thinking of that film, Coda, you listen to the director and the trouble she had getting the money to make that film and the fight she had to insist that deaf actors would play the parts of deaf people. Right? It's so hard for many people to receive the esteem and the honour that they should get just because they're a human being and every single one of us is made in God's image, no matter our skin colour, our gender, our education, our background, our disability. Right? That, 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 that's being oppressed, not being humble. Right? And uh, God is way bigger than any of us and in his loving kindness, he wants our dignity. He works for our, our honour. I've seen over the years people who came to Christ who were downtrodden and messed up and seen how they grew and flourished and great, gained confidence, grew into a person of dignity and of self-respect. You know, God does that in people. In fact, it's called something called gospel lift because God lifts people. That's what the scripture says here. He, he will lift you up. God works in our lives. So, um, you know, I don't think, Ali said wonderfully last week, humility is not ab about thinking less of yourself. I do think it often involves spending more time thinking about other people. That's very good. Um, but I think it's also about what we think about other people, that we think of other people as being better than ourselves. I mean, Paul actually says this in Philippians 2, doesn't he? I've got three bi different Bible version translations of this on the next slide. He says, in humility, value others about above yourselves, NIV. ESV, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. New Living Translation, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. I often wonder about that, because, you know, if somebody can play the piano amazingly, 
Um, how could they possibly think I, I'm better than them at playing the piano? Because I'm not. Do you, yeah? Um, but I think it's to think better of the other person's motives. That, I th to think the best of people's motives, to me, seems to be what humility does. We esteem others to be significant. We think them... When you're proud, you constantly feel the slights of other people's behaviour. I think when you're humble, you believe they meant no harm. Yeah? And so, of course, there are people who do mean harm. I'm not meaning that we should pretend about that. But in general, um, in, in social exploration, we can believe the well about others. So, secondly, cast all your anxiety on him, verse 7, because he cares for you. Peter reminded us that God is mighty in verse 6. And here Peter reminds us that God cares, that God is loving. Aren't these the two most important things we want to know about God? That he is mighty and that he's loving. Um, Peter had previously told us, this is the next slide, going back through his letter in 2.23, that Christ handed himself over to the one who judges justly, that the holy women had placed their hope in God, 3 verse 5, that in 4.19, that the audience were to entrust their lives to a faithful creator, and now he tells us, you know, put your anxiety on him, cast your cares on him, let God be your God, let him be your heavenly father by actually casting your cares on on him. God has a monopoly on being your father. He doesn't want you going, if when my children were young, they'd gone next door to say their socks had a hole in, could they buy new socks? I'd have been, what are you doing going next door about that? You should tell me, your dad, right? We should go to our dad about these things. About 25 years ago, maybe longer, I was hosting the uh, Sunday gathering in our church and a, a guy, we had a former vicar in our church called Miles Castleton, and he had joined our church in retirement. And he came forward to give a testimony. He said how he'd been a prisoner of war with his, pair, his mother, I think it was, in Singapore in the Second World War, and a bomb had exploded near him. He'd had permanent hearing loss, and he did, he had hearing aids, but he had not been killed by this explosion. And he said, God saved my life that day. Later on as a child, he'd got into trouble in the sea swimming. He thought he was gone and somebody saved him. He said, twice God has saved my physical life. And he gave this test. He said, I want to give glory to God. And then he walked back down the aisle. And as he did so, he collapsed on the floor. Right? And uh, we quickly realized this was like a major event. We got the children out to the children's groups quickly. I said to everyone, look, we know Miles knows Jesus. So if he's died here today, he's gone to a better place but let's pray and um and honestly I was nervous as anything blood and stuff like that I'm not good with I don't know how people do medical stuff honestly and um so uh, but what happened was in the congregation is so often the case there was like a there was a nurse there was a GP there was a, a, a registrar anaesthetist there was a met police officer who'd been a traffic cop for about 20 years and he'd attended numerous awful traf traffic accidents with terrible injuries and knew all the stuff to do. His name was Colin and uh, loved the guy to bits. And honestly, he was my hero that day for days after. So, oh, thank God for Colin and for, for these people who were there because he just stepped in, he took over, he started doing the CPR stuff, he knew exactly how to do this stuff. 
Uh, they'd called the ambulance. When the ambulance arrived, the anaesthetist said, I'll do the intubation, and they did all the stuff. Uh, but Colin was this great big guy, a gentle giant, but absolutely huge. And I was thinking, oh, God, I'm so glad Colin is there. He's just, I can, I, my anxiety just dropped loads because of the people who were gathered around this situation. Can you, can you get this? Because I knew I wouldn't know what to do, but there were people who knew what to do. Friends, God knows what to do. There is nothing that happens in your life that God doesn't know how to handle, that you can't take to him and say, okay, God, Father, I don't know what you're going to do, but I wonder what you are going to do about this. And you cast your anxiety to him. It's not about being irresponsible and just not doing anything. No, you still need to do the things you need to do. It's the anxiety that you cast to him. Yeah. So um, we suffer many things while we wait for the kingdom of God, many trials which tend to anxiety. But let's always remember the Father cares for us. He doesn't always stop bad things happening to us. Lots of bad things happen to Miles Castleton. But God was with him through those things. And just so you know the end of the story, he suddenly coughed and started breathing again. He had triple or quadruple bypass surgery, made a full recovery, and came to testify about that as well. So, and made it back to his seat that time. So, verse 8, be alert and of sober mind. Verse 9, resist him standing firm in the, devil, in the faith. Resist, um, right? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Sometimes as Christians, we can make too much of the devil and sometimes we make too little of the devil and we need the Spirit's help to be discerning in these matters. Um, but there is a real spiritual battle. As a Christian, I believe there really are demonic spirit beings, demons, spirits. There's a king of those demons called the devil or Satan. And, um, and he hates us. He hates you. He hates Jesus. He hates everything that looks and show, reminds him of Jesus. And you know we're made in God's image, so every single human being reminds him of God, and he hates us. And... So we need to think clearly about Satan because he wants to trick us um, and uh, in, in all kinds of ways. He wants to, uh, for example, I think he wants to make us think that um, we're all alone, that nobody else has it like I do. Everyone else has their stuff together. Look at them, all these people in church smiling and laughing at the jokes in the talk. They're all together. You know, people aren't all together. Right, and uh, we don't have a little kind of readout on here giving a you know a mood, you know, um, gauge or something like that. But if we did, it would be all over the place, okay? And um, you know, it's the enemy telling you, you know, you're, it's it's only you that can't make it. Uh, I'm the one left behind. I'm on the outside. Everyone else is on the inside. When actually, when you talk to people, all of us feel like we're on the outside. That's why we need Jesus, because he's the one who brings us close to the Father. And, but you see, Peter knows the devil's schemes, because he says to us, you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Now, he was speaking of a certain thing, but I think there's a wisdom here. You know, what we experience is common. It's what many people experience. At 3 a.m. in the morning, it doesn't feel like that, I know. Been there. But it is a common experience. 
It's not unique. You are not forgotten. You are not rejected. This is fake news from Satan who hates Jesus and he wants us to have whole, and so Jesus wants us to get our wholesome thinking in place because the Satan hates us, wants to steal, kill and destroy the image of Christ in us. I think of a wonderful passage in Isaiah that emphasizes that God does not forget us from chapter 49 verse 13 in which God uses the image of a mother and likens himself to a mother, so relevant on Mother's Day. Verse 13, shout for joy, you heavens, rejoice, you earth, burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion, that's God's people, said, the Lord's forsaken me, the Lord's forgotten me. Some of us play that kind of tape in our thoughts. It's not wholesome thinking. And this is how God replies. Verse 15, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will never forget you. Right. I mean, not many mothers can forget, but God is saying, I'm better than a mother. See, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. God will not forget you. You are not forgotten. You are not rejected. Whatever the enemy tells you, this is the word of the Lord to you. So dear friends, let's be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy travels around, the enemy, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. See, enemy is actually the word for Satan. The word Satan means enemy or adversary. The devil, as it says here, that's a word meaning slanderer or accuser. Satan will always be trying to slander God to you, to slander you to God, to slander you to yourself, to get you to slander God, to get you to slander others. That's the devil's work, to humiliate, to slander, to belittle. Paraphrasing John chapter 10.10, Satan has only come to steal, to kill and to destroy, to steal, to kill and destroy your reputation, your character, your faith in God, your very life. Slander always steals, always kills, always destroys. It diminishes us all. Slander makes us smaller because it devours us. But honoring, honoring others makes us all bigger because it moves us towards the destiny of sharing in the glory. So how do we resist the devil? Well, Peter points to, uh, you know, let's not you know, be sober-minded, have wholesome thinking, and just don't do the devil's work for him. You've all heard, I'm sure, of friendly fire incidents in warfare, and uh, when military accidentally fire on their own people. Um, to avoid this, every army will use markings to identify its own. I'm currently thinking about a Z. But... You need, we need that kind of thing. So let's not participate in the devil's schemes because then we are resisting him. So let's come back to the, that, that, that verse five, clothe ourselves with humility. I love how Ellie reminded us last week that we as Christians have a uniform and that uniform is humility. Oh yes, I thought that was fantastic. I suggest to you that humility is to live a life in which we are honoring others. It's one of the ways that we do humility. The biggest antidote to pride is to actively celebrate other people, their talents, their successes, just like Ellie actually modeled for us last Sunday morning. The Apostle Paul wrote on this same theme in 1 Corinthians 12 from 18. He says, but in fact, 
God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. He's using a metaphor to speak about his people, the the, the church. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. That's pride, right? On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. He's modeling this behavior of honoring, of esteeming. This is what God is trying to do, and we let him do that through us. Someone called William Arthur Ward said this, when we seek to discover the best in others, we somehow bring out the best in ourselves. I think it's true. So God knows that he can safely share his glory with us when he knows that we will always share his glory, not hoard it, because we've realized that glory is not a status to strut in, but a celebration to share in. So maybe you're looking for a new church. Well, you know, it's not about finding the right church. It's actually more about becoming the right person. Um, Not quite sure how that fits in, really, now I've said there, but I think it's true in marriage as well, you know? Sometimes we can think, you know, when we first got married, Elspeth gave me a card, and it said um, on the front, um, it was before we were married, when we were going out, all my life I've been searching for the right one, and then I found you, dot, 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 instead. Um, So, um, but, you know, we, we, um, which is lovely, because... (laughs) I probably shouldn't have said you that. It's not in my notes. It's just. Um, I'll jump to the last verse of the chapter. Look. But Elspeth is very patient because, you know, one of the things about pride is to assume you're always right. And that is a habit of mine. I'm, I'm very confident in some areas and not very confident in other areas, probably just like you. And, uh, but when I'm confident, I'm absolutely sure I'm right. And so, uh, you know, like, oh, we left the lights on all last night, you know, or whatever it is, or the TV has been on all night, you know. And, uh, you know, in the past, I have to admit, I would often say it was Elspeth's fault, you know. That's pride. Honestly, it is. Now, I, I've, I'm a little bit better. I am a little bit better. I honestly believe I am. But I've spent so many years telling Elspeth it was her fault that even when I just say, oh, we left the television on all night, she still thinks I'm blaming her. Right? And, and it's fair enough. I, I've given such a poor, proud example. And I need to, do, I need to be, keep undoing it. And I need to keep changing. Be humble. Right? Be completely humble. It's an invitation to all of us in all our relationships to become more like Christ. 
Because as we do, he can so freely share his glory with us because we know, he knows we're going to share it and give it away. So yes, the last verse. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Probably just like a kiss on the cheek. We do some hugging in church. COVID makes it a little more wary, doesn't it? But uh, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace. Shalom. Just take a deep breath of God's peace. Just breathe it in deeply. It's wonderful peace. Let's just cast the anxiety onto him. If it helps you to shut your eyes and picture Christ in front of you and a box just open the lid of the box, put the anxiety in the box. Say, Jesus, I'm giving this to you. I don't know how you can sort this issue out, but Father God, I wonder what you'll do about it. I'm giving it to you. Shut the lid. Give that away. I'd like to invite you to stand and pray a prayer along with me. It's the peace prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. And I think in many ways it's like a mother's prayer, actually. I think a lot of mothers live like this. So it's, uh, there's two slides. I'm sure you're familiar with the prayer. It's a very brave prayer. But if you can, I invite you to pray it out loud and that the Holy Spirit would help make it real in us and even if you're not sure I'm willing for this maybe you're willing to be willing which is a very good place to be so we pray this now Lord make me an instrument of your peace where there is hatred let me sow love where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O oh, divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. And back to Emily and the band. And we're going to sing a wonderful song about the grace of God and his favor upon us. <laughs>